I want to see who won the contest of staying up the longest time last week. Is there anyone here who's stayed awake 24 hours? 24 hours, okay. 30 hours, all right. 36 hours without sleep. One, anyone be two? Okay, anyone that more than 36? All right. How many? You're a fool. <laughs> hey man, that's all right. I did it 72 hours one time, but it wasn't for volleyball marathon. It was because I didn't have time to do anything. I, I didn't have time to sleep. Um, that's probably why sleep deprivation affects my, some of my brain cells, I think. Um, turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew 9. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. <clears throat> So that was your uh, that was your prize being called a fool, amen. <laughs> I didn't really mean that. Matthew chapter nine. I remember. It's always a freshman that do that, you know. Are you a freshman? Oh, that's what I figured. Okay. <laughs> Matthew chapter nine. You'll learn, right, seniors? You'll learn. Matthew chapter nine, verse thirty-five. Matthew chapter nine, verse thirty-five. It says here, and Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would Use this message, God, to speak to our hearts, God, that you would give me the words to say, Lord, that you would leave out whatever you wouldn't have me to say and to say what you would have me to say, and Lord, to help me to say it all with your power. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in people's hearts, that you would uh, prepare hearts, uh, not just of the uh, men and women of the uh, Bible college, but also of the high school, God. And Lord, I know that uh, you worked on my heart during my high school years, and so, Lord, I pray that you would open up the hearts of both the high schoolers and the men and women of the, uh, of the college. And, Lord, I pray that you just give me words to say at this time. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Christ uh, went from village to village, from city to city, with weary feet, weary throat, I believe, it, as well. And at this time, there was no others preaching the gospel you could say, well, how about John the Baptist? He was in jail. Well, how about his apostles? They weren't apostles at that time. They were just disciples, just like everyone else. They weren't called into the ministry until chapter 10. So Jesus was doing it all himself. The Bible says in verse 36 that he saw the multitudes, and he was moved with compassion on them. He was moved knowing that he was the only one to reach the Thousands that would surround him, that would hear his messages, that were in Israel at that time. And he was moving with compassion. Reminds me of us missionaries. Uh, when we see the hundreds of thousands, like in Mexico City. Mexico City has 22 million people. It's hard to wrap your head around that. That's as many people as Nicaragua, Honduras, and Costa Rica put together in one Small and one giant city, one small space. Uh, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it. That's why I decided when we started our church in Mexico City proper 
that I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't at that time concentrate so much on 22 million because it's daunting. I decided I'm going to concentrate on the 400,000 uh, that are in our delegation. Mexico City is divided into 16 delegations, just like New York City is divided into different boroughs, whether it's the Queens or Bron- the Bronx or, or uh, Manhattan. Mexico City is divided into 16 delegations, 400,000 almost in our delegation. I said, we're just going to concentrate on that 400,000. Uh, to think of anything else would be just too, too difficult to even imagine. And th- thankfully, we've knocked every door there. Of uh, those 400,000, one time, it took 13 years to do the first time. We're about to, ready to do it the second time. We're almost finished. We're in the last neighborhood. Uh, 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 or we'll have, uh, in five years, done what we did in 13 years. It helps when you have more help. Amen? But I could tell, take you to a place in Mexico City. There, in, in fact, is Nacalpan right across the highway from our uh, churches. Uh, begins the suburbs of Nacalpan. 814,000 people in that suburb, and I could take you, and I've taken several people there, I think I've taken Brother Olson and others, James and others, and I could, uh, uh, in fact, you'll see one, uh, in about a month from now, our video, and uh, I'm standing in front of a ridge, and you can see a sea of gray. There are homes that were built by the occupants themselves, just thrown up, ramshackled homes, none of them according to code, I'm sure. Um, None of them paid, and that's why they're still gray, because most of them aren't painted, because they don't have the money to do that. But tens of thousands of homes, and it, but that's all you see in the video, but if you would see it as it really is, you see a ridge of hundreds of thousands of homes. And then there's a dip, and then there's another ridge that goes for miles and miles and miles of hundreds of thousands of homes. And then there's another dip and another ridge with tens of thousands of homes, hundreds of thousands in that area. And we drive through that area as we have four bus routes that go through there, three bus routes there, and another one in Mexico City itself. And as we drive through there and go knocking doors and climbing up and down the ridges and and, uh, mountains, we see the people completely lost, just as Jesus saw here. The Bible says that he saw and was moved on compassion as they saw them, they were fainted. That word fainted has the ideal of cumbered about. Cumbered about with their sin and the guilt of their sin. The guilt that you and I felt before we were saved. The guilt we still feel when we sin that we ought to feel. But it, for them it's even, uh, it's a deeper guilt because there's, 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 no, there's still that condemnation. Their conscience eats at them. Cumbered about because of their, the weight of their problems. Most of them caused by their own sin. The Bible says they're scattered about. That gives the idea of looking for answers, going about looking for answers in all the wrong places. People that are looking for their, their needs to be met. They look at vices or illicit sex. And they, and they only find it causes even more problems in their life. And as I see their homes broken because of their sin... Broken homes, most of them don't even have a father in a home. If they do, he's out playing with uh, video games while the mother is uh, living, in, living in the mother-in-law's home because the husband's irresponsible. And I think of that verse in Scripture that says, my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. And it's so sad because the, the knowledge that they need is right here. But as the Bible says here, there is no shepherd to guide them. And they were they're scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. 
And then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. As I mentioned, some of you weren't here last, yesterday morning when I preached. Seventy years ago, in 1950, there were, to reach the four billion at that time in the world, there were 100,000 missionaries leaving the shores of the United States. Many of them were not just the Baptists, but all denominations, including the Catholics. Today, 70 years later, there are 8 billion people to reach. You would probably think, well, then there must be 200,000 people, 200,000 missionaries to reach the 8 billion. No, in fact, it's 29 million, one-third of what there was 70 years ago to reach twice as many people. Surely, the harvest is plenteous, but the labors are few. And the question is, why is it so few? That's what I'd like to answer today. It says in verse 38, and so Jesus said, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest. In fact, in Spanish, the word is, Beg ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth labors into his harvest. God is in the sinning business. And so the question that is begged is, Why are there so few if God says that the harvest is so great but the labors are few. Certainly the problem isn't with God. Certainly God would, like to, God would not be so unjust that he only have give the opportunity to hear the gospel to a select few here in the United States who have heard it over and over again and have ignored or rejected the gospel when there are millions of people that would accept it if they would just have the chance to hear it. Surely it's not, the problem is not with God. Surely it's not that God doesn't want to send or is sending but I believe because there are so few that are heeding the call. And so that are so many that are so distracted that they can't even hear the call. So I'd like to talk about that. In fact, let's go back to the verse in verse 36 when it says, He saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they were faint and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Tonight I'd like to preach about, or this morning I'd like to preach about the reluctant shepherd. The reluctant shepherd. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. And when I think of Mexico City, that's where God's called me, I think of how daunting, how daunting the challenge. One man cannot reach 22 million people. We need so many more missionaries there. You know, I'm doing my best. We have our church that's reaching the 400,000 in our delegation. And then God spoke to my heart about starting a mission there in that city of 814,000 where there's only one independent Baptist church. Surely there's a need for another one. So we started a mission there and a year from now it'll be its own independent Baptist church. Our assistant pastor will be pastoring it. Then we started on the other side of the city, another one by the airport, another mission. Because because the harvest is 400,000, what about the other hundreds of thousands? So hopefully there'll be a church there established in four or five years. One of our graduates is now working in that mission. And then we started a mission to Pito, which is like the, the, well, it's called the Barrio Bravo, which means the fierce neighborhood. We have a street mission there, and hopefully we'll see some church there established someday as well. But even if you think that, that's four works among 400,000 each. Okay, we could say that we're reaching 800,000. Then the church that we saw started in the suburbs before I started this church, there's about a half a million there. You could say we're reaching at least uh, uh, two million. Uh, let's see, four times five is two million. But what is that among 22 million? 
Even in the lifetime, after 50 years, we've been able to at least canvas and, and, and visit and, and preach to 500, uh, uh, 2 million people. What about the other 20 million? It's so daunting. And the reason why is because there's so few laborers. And I believe it's because we have some reluctant shepherds, as Moses was here in our text, Acts, uh, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. I want to give a back story about, about Moses. And we'll see how he ended up being there in the backside of a desert. And it's going to be related to my, I, I, I'm usually reluctant to give my testimony, but I'm going to give my testimony of my calling. Because I believe in, my, in this testimony of my calling, you can see four reasons why more aren't being aren't heeding to the call. As I said, the problem isn't with God. The problem with, is with those who are not heeding the call. I'll give you four reasons why I almost did not go to the mission field. And I believe this is a reason why many do not heed the call. The first one is self-centeredness of self-will. Self-centeredness of self-will. Let's look at the backstory of Moses by starting in Acts chapter 7. Before Moses was a shepherd there in the backside of Horeb, the Mount Horeb, backside of the desert by Mount Horeb, he was the prince of Egypt. He was adopted son of Tutmosis III, the greatest pharaoh in all the history of Egypt. He was a powerful man. Some people think that he even was given uh, the job of working the mines of Solomon there by Horeb. That's why he knew to go to Horeb. He knew that place. He knew that area. That's what many people think. But he was a prince of Egypt. The Bible says he's mighty in deeds. Look at what it says here in Acts chapter 7, verse 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt and was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was fully 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit the brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God, by his hand, would deliver him. But they understood not. Now, at this time, Moses hadn't spoken to God, and God hadn't spoken to Moses. But he had this idea, I'm in a position, I've been given the education, I'm mighty in words, I'm mighty in deeds. Surely, if Israel's going to be delivered, it's going to be by me. He had this self-centered idea that everything revolved around him. That he was the one that God would use. God hadn't told him that. That came out of his own mind and his own self-will. It reminds me of when I was a young person, 12, 13 years old. I had these great visions of grandeur. I was in a church. Um, I was, uh, we were from a poor family. I didn't have, we didn't have much money. We lived in a four-room, not four-bedroom home, four-room home, two bedrooms, living room and a kitchen where we ate as well. Uh, my dad didn't have much money. Uh, we lived off the, basically the garden that we had. It was a good thing we had a garden so we could eat uh, and, and chickens that we could eat their eggs and kill a chicken or two once in a while. And uh, we were basically the outsiders of the church. We weren't uh, in the know in the church. We weren't the big family. We were just a poor family that attended the church 
Uh, Dad wasn't even really uh, in church. Mom got us in church more than anything. Uh, there was eight of us kids uh, for, for a while. Oh, well, there's six of us. There's uh, six kids, eight of us all together. For a while, Grandma was living with us. I remember sleeping with Grandma. And then, uh, so where did all the kids sleep? Well, some slept on couches, and my dad built an attic where uh, in his closet you could go into the, uh, it was almost like Heidi, the, you know, the story of Heidi. There's the little uh, ladder going up the steps uh, in my dad's, uh, dad's uh, closet, and then I'd go up, and I remember when I graduated from the room, because my older brother, he went out to the garage to sleep, and uh, we went out, I, I had the attic all to myself, all to myself, Amen. <laughs> And uh, that, that's, that's the way we lived. But I had dreams. I remember being in that attic, preaching away to the thousands that I'd preach to someday. I had my, I had a, a, a I, I like drawing. I like drawing buildings. So I had my building drawn out and where all the Sunday school classes would be in the auditorium and everything like, like that. I had uh, visions of grandeur of being this great preacher at the time. Um, and it was my self-will. I'd give him my, I, I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a preacher. I wasn't even called yet, I don't think. But I had my ideas of what I was going to do and my dreams of, uh, 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 for my life. And, uh, but then we started going to another church. And uh, there was a preacher there, uh, a missionary that would come. In fact, he ended up teaching here in the, in, in the college here for a while. His name was Daryl Chaplin. And Daryl Chaplin was a missionary to, the Sur- to Suriname for years, missionary to the Congo for 10 years in the 1950s until there was a, there was a uh, rebellion that took place, a civil war. But he preached a message, and I want us to turn to John 21 and see how God used this message in my life. It's a message that maybe you've heard of. It's a well-known message called Loving with Shoes On. Love with Shoes On or with Boots On. He preached the message in John, from John chapter 20, 21. It's about when Jesus had risen from the dead and he was talking to Peter. We know that Peter three times uh, denied the Lord. And it says in verse 15, And when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He said, he said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again, second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto thee, Feed my sheep. He said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And, Jesus, and Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. Verse 18, Verily, verily, I said unto you, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldst. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken, he said unto him, Follow me. Brother Darrell Chaplin preached from this message, and he talked about how, how, we, should, how we love God. Asking, how do we love God? And he says that first a couple of times when Peter, uh, Peter was, was asked, he answered with a, with a Greek word phileo, thou knowest that I love thee, in a warm, with warm-hearted affection, like we do love the Lord. But, then he, but Jesus was asking with another word. 
He was asking with a word agape, which means a self-sacrificing love. He said, Peter, what he was saying was, Peter, are you willing not only just to follow me and fellowship with me, are you willing to do not your own will, but do God's will, even if it leads you to being carried away on a cross, which eventually happened to Peter. Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing, as Daryl Chaplin said, it, put on your boots and go to war for God? Are you willing to sacrifice for me? And I remember Brother Chaplin giving an illustration of when he was in the Congo and there was that civil war that was, I was telling you about and how his kids were captured by the rebels. For three days, they had no idea where their kids were at. And God came to him and asked him, do you love me? Are you willing to stay here on the mission field even if you lose your kids? And he eventually said, yes, Lord. He loved God, not with just a warm-hearted affection, but willing to sacrifice for his God. And I believe many times this is the reason why many young people do not surrender to the will of God because they have their own will. They have their own desires. They have not surrendered their will to God. And God spoke to my heart about that. And he started working in my heart and taking away that self-centeredness from me, that self-will that I had. I said, you know what? I might have something else for you. It may not be, a, be to be a preacher. It may be to do something else. Are you willing to do whatever I have you to do? And I said, yes, Lord. I want to love you with that self-sacrificing love, not just with a warm-hearted love for all the things you've done for me. You see, another thing that keeps people from surrendering to the mission field, and I believe it's not just the self-centeredness of self-will, but also the arrogance of ambition. The arrogance of ambition. Turn with me to Acts 7. Let's go back back to Moses. As we said, Moses was a man mighty. He was the prince of Egypt. He was mighty in deeds, the Bible says, mighty in works. We don't know exactly all that that entailed, but obviously he was not just a great man by by adoption, being adopted by the princes of Egypt, the princess of Egypt. But he was also uh, was given opportunities and and obviously showed his uh, talents and showed his uh, that he had some um, ability there. And that's why he thought, certainly I'm the one that God wants to use to deliver the people. And perhaps he thought, I'm going to be a general someday. The Bible says he resorted to violence here. He smote the Egyptian, thinking this is the beginning of a great movement of perhaps a civil war against the Egypts. And I'm going to be the general that are going to guide a victorious Israel after defeating their enemies. Guide them into the promised land. His problem was he was arrogant. His problem was his ambition. I remember when I uh, started going to a good church, and I surrendered my will to him, and in a way, I, I said, God, I'm willing to sacrifice if that's what you want me to do. But then I found that I was pretty good at school. Got straight A's. In fact, I graduated a year early, almost two years early. I uh, just had a little bit of Algebra 2 to finish in physics, or I could have graduated when I was 15. And I saw that I had a little bit of ability, and I thought, well, maybe I can be a doctor, or maybe I could make a... And, I, and pretty soon I was thinking, if I become a doctor, anything that I could have. Started thinking about that home. In fact, remember I said I love to draw? I had my drawing of my home 
uh, you know, cathedral ceiling uh, 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 living room with a balcony that comes from the master bedroom where you can look over the cathedral building, a uh, cathedral living room, uh, ceiling living room. And, and then I'd have my fireplace there in my master bedroom. In the back, I had a balcony that looked out to the back pool that was back there. And then back there, the woods. I had my ideas. And then, I, you know, you have your... I had my uh, driveway that, that had a circle, so you could just, you never had to back up, amen. I had that circle in front there with my, where I'd drive up with my uh, Nissan uh, 300ZX that don't really, doesn't even exist anymore, amen. Hell, <laughs> oh, I had my ideas. I could make a lot of money. Why do you say that? Because that's what I believe keeps a lot of young people from surrendering the mission field. They have their ideas. The arrogance of ambition, they have their ambitions. I remember I preached last time I was here four years ago about Jonah. Jonah had his ambitions. You know, I don't believe it was just because he didn't want to, uh, he, he wanted Nineveh destroyed. He had a cushy job where he was at. He was in the king's chapel. Well, Amos was in the king's chapel. I believe he probably was there as well. But Amos, he always prophesied what the king didn't want to hear. While Jonah, he talked about how the king's territory would be extended forever. He became the favorite. He became the pet prophet. Oh, he had a cushy job there, and maybe Jonah thought, man, I could just have a, a, a great church here. I could just things could go well here, have the money, have everything that a preacher would want. That's how Moses was, I believe. He had ambitions of being this great leader, this general that would lead Israel by force out of Egypt. But God got a hold of his heart in Hebrews chapter 11. I believe Hebrews chapter eleven. Hebrews chapter eleven. I think it had to. He had to have some things happen to him. Uh, the people didn't accept it that well. Not even his own people. He ended up having to run for his life. The Bible says from the greatest and mightiest Pharaoh that existed, Tutmos the third. Bible says he was willing in Hebrews chapter eleven. We'll read it in a second, but before we read it. That was my problem. But then I heard another message. Daryl Chaplin came the following year again to the missions conference in my church. And he preached a second message. And just keep your finger there in Hebrews 11. And we'll look at it again. But I want us to look at the other passage that he preached. uh, Daryl Chaplin preached from 1 Samuel chapter 15. And this one even spoke to my heart more than the famous message of loving with shoes on. I don't know if we're going to be able to read all of it. We'll read parts of it. First Samuel 15, 1 through 3. Well, we know the story. Let me just read the, tell you a little bit of the story. We'll read some of it. But uh, in First Samuel 15, Saul is told to kill all the Amalekites. They had good reason to do it. The Amalekites had just killed and and uh, many of their uh, elderly, many of their children have followed in the trail behind on the way to the promised land. And he said, no, in verse 3, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. Man and women, infant suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Verse 7, the Bible says, Saul smote the Amalekites. But then he says in verse 8 that he took Agag the king alive. He didn't kill him. But he destroyed all the rest. He thought, I'm doing most of the will of God. 
In verse 9, Saul and the people spared Agag. Not only that, but the best of the sheep and the ox and the fatlings and the lambs. And so Samuel comes to him. Turn with me to verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be the Lord, of the, uh, thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What? Meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear. Those were the words that smote my heart when Daryl Chaplin said, What meaneth the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? Why do you want to do things your way? And the reason why I want to do it, because I had my ambition, the great American dream. That great American dream with the nice house, the picket fence that so many Americans dream for. That the television says you ought to have that you deserve, what the billboards say that you ought to deserve, what our culture says that we deserve. And God smote my heart and said, what about those bleeding of the sheep in my ears? The bleeding of the sheep of money and reputation. And then he said these words that how Samuel took that King Agag in verse 32 and said, Bring me hither to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among men, among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Darrell Chaplin said, slay the Agags of the great American dream. Maybe you have a great American dream. Maybe even to be in the ministry, but have everything just the way you want it. Have that nice church. Have that, the, the offerings coming in. <laughs> Having that reputation of being some great preacher here in America. What you and I and all of us need to do is slay the Agags of the great American dream. Being willing to do whatever God would have you to do. That's what happened to, that's what happened to, now let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. That's what happened to Moses. Moses had everything. He he was used to having everything as a prince of Egypt, having his own way, having all the comforts around him. But it came to a point in verse 24 that by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming reproaches of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. The Bible says this arrogant man became the meekest of all men. Now we find him in the desert. God Spoke to his heart just like he did mine. But I see a third thing that can keep people. And Moses overcame this one. And that's what I praise God. And that's the dullness of distraction. We saw self-centeredness of self-will, arrogance of ambition. But also the dullness of distraction can keep young people from doing the will of God or going to the mission field. And from hearing the call of God to go to the mission field. Here in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is where God wants him now. He's almost there. In fact, we see something here that Moses overcomes that allows them to hear the call of God. The Bible says in verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. 
And this is what I want us to look at in verse 3. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. If Moses had not turned aside to go see that burning bush, he would have never heard the call of God. And I believe God many times appears unto us, not exactly like a burning bush, but we, he, he, he manifests himself to us from afar. What do you mean by that? From hearing the word of God preached. From reading God's word. From being in Sunday school. From the counsel of good men. We, God is speaking to us, but, but, we're, we're from, but from afar. Because the only way that we're really going to hear God's voice is when we get close to him. That's something I had to learn. It wasn't just going to church. It wasn't just going to Sunday school. It wasn't just getting counsel from good men. I had to go and get close to God. If he hadn't done that, if he hadn't turned aside and and said, I want to know more about that bush. I want to know more about my God. I want to see what God has for me. That's what I had to do. As a young man, I... Finally said, okay, ambition, I, I don't need to, you know, have the car. I don't need to have the house. God almost had me where he needed me to be. And thank God I also overcame the dullness of distraction. Oh, man, when I was 12 and 13 years old, I was a TV junkie. <laughs> I could tell you every, uh, of old, and it was all, almost all old, the me TV type of stuff. <laughs> I would tell, I would be able to. I would be able to sing every song from Green Acres to, you know, all those songs of the 60s and 50s, you know. I was a TV junkie. Today we don't have so much the TV that distracts us. We have, and thankfully I didn't bring it here, the smartphone. Oh, how the smartphone distracts. People walk in the walls almost with the smartphone, walking in the puddles out here looking at their smartphone, amen. Oh, how the smartphone, oh, how the television, oh, how the computer can distract us. Oh, how thinking about getting married can distract us. A woman can distract us. A man can distract us. The dullness of distraction. He overcame that, though. And I remember as a teenager, I overcame that. Stop watching the television. I remember spending time with God there in that. Now I wasn't up in the attic. It was in the garage. Triple-I garage. Triple-I walls. <laughs> That's all my dad could afford to house us. Remember, hot in the summertime, cold in the winter. I remember sharing the electric heater two hours in our room and then two hours in my sister's room out there in the garage. But that's where I saw God. Remember me, I'm on my knees with the Bible there in the bed. And God speaking to me. And God talking to me. And God preparing me for what he had for me. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, the Bible says that Moses saw the invisible. Have you seen the invisible? Are you too distracted to spend time with God because you're so involved with so many other things? And then last of all, the fear of failure. The fear of failure keeps people from surrendering. It says here in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Remember, this is a Pharaoh. Until now, really, I believe that uh, Moses didn't even know that Pharaoh had died because God tells him later on. He didn't want to tell him until, <laughs> until uh, Moses obeyed. 
And Moses said unto him, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh? We don't see him saying, I'm this great general. I'm going to deliver Israel. We see him humble now saying, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh? And that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. And I think he's thinking, who am I to go to the Pharaoh who wanted to slay me? The Bible says that in verse 10, he started giving excuses even. And Moses said unto the Lord, oh, my Lord, am I not eloquent? I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am a slow speech and a slow tongue. And that was my problem. I was the shyest. You can ask anyone that went to school with me. You can ask, where, where's Brother Yura? Ask your sister-in-law, Gina, someday, how shy I was. Uh, ask anyone. I, I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say two words to anybody. Maybe you feel that way. You're slow of speech. Maybe you feel that way, that you don't have it within you. That's how I was. So for four years, I fought the call of God. I knew God was calling me to the missions. It wasn't until I heard a message preached March 31st, 1988, if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I had a fear of failure. I thought, I can't be a whole, and I knew my sin as well. I was a sinful, and I I wasn't in drugs, I wasn't in alcohol. I was a bus captain at the age of 18. I was serving in the church. But I knew my faults, and I thought, I could never be a holy man, a, a, a preacher of the gospel. God can't use me. And I don't have the words to say. And I, I was embarrassed even speaking in a, in a, to my friends, a group of five friends. I would blush. The Bible says here in Second Corinthians, I heard this preach, my grace is sufficient for thee. And that day I said to God, God, then you're going to have to do it. And I went forward and I remember uh, saying to God, and I quoted scripture to him and the verse that says, great... Faithful is he which had called you that also will do. And I said, God, you're going to have to do it because I can't do it. And then my pastor, when he went forward, he, he, went, he saw me go forward. And he went and spoke to me and said, Clint, why did you come up here? And I said, and I said exactly like this. I think God's made a mistake, but I believe he's called me to the mission field. Because <laughs> I really felt like I, he, he was making a mistake. I was slow of speech. I wasn't eloquent. Still not. But we need to get over, come over come that fear and just trust God. His grace is sufficient for you. Young person, if that's the reason why you're afraid of surrendering the missions, afraid of failure, just trust God. He is faithful. And God called this Moses, who is probably just keeping 250 sheep, from keeping 250 sheep, delivering 2.5 million people and leading them out of the Egypt. Maybe God wants to do that to you, with you. Maybe he wants to lead you to reach millions for the Lord. What God can do with a reluctant shepherd. He'll just cast away his self-will and do only what God would have him to do. If he could get rid of his ambition and, do, and be willing to do whatever God would have him to do, even be a, a shepherd on the backside of the desert. If he would get rid of the di- distractions in his life, the smartphone, and spend more time with God in prayer. How much time we waste in sitting in a whole God. How did you know to go to Mexico City on my knees? A man came named uh, Mark Brown, came to our church and talked about Mexico City. When I surrendered to preach about two months later, uh, I had three different mission fields on my mind. Mexico City was one of them. 
I can't go to all three. So I said to God, God, I know I got Bible college still to do. I know that uh, you don't have to tell me now, but I'd like to know now. And I prayed. 30 days I prayed. And finally God said, give me peace, Mexico City. I told our people uh, in our church, the people in our church, my pastor had me come forward one time to pray and dismiss the church. And I let them know. I believe God called me, called me to Mexico City. And God confirmed that. God confirmed that when my pastor said that's exactly where I was hoping that you would go. And uh, I think of Moses when he, when he went to Egypt. God confirmed, hey, you know what? That king you were afraid of, he's dead. <laughs> God confirmed it. Then I came here, and there was a missionary already on his way to Mexico City. His name was Dave Johnson. <laughs> I had a person I could work with. And it's amazing how God uses. I wish I could tell all the stories. The last 26 years, all that God has done. Two churches started. One, build, one has a building worth 250000 land, and the other one 400000 We've seen thousands of people saved over the years. What God can do with a reluctant shepherd who will give himself to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, maybe there's someone here whose ambition is keeping them from being, from surrendering to missions. Maybe it's a self-will. Maybe it's because they're distracted and they don't even hear the call of God. They'd get close to God like Moses did when he saw that bush from afar. He didn't just stay saying, that's, well, that's great. He wanted to know more about God. He wanted to get close to God. Lord, I pray that we'd have that attitude, Lord, that also we'd be willing to give ourselves to God and say, God, I've just got to trust in you. Use me as you see fit. Pray these things in your name. Amen. With heads bowed and eyes closed, let's stand to our feet as the piano.